First John chapter 3, beginning at verse 19 through um, the end of the chapter, <clears throat> through verse 24. So hear, hear now God's word. First John 3, 19 to 24. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our hearts before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, and he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God, and whatever we ask we receive from him, because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, just as he, just as he has commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. And by this we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I would pray that you would help give us insight into this truth and as we think about it and pray that it would minister to our hearts and be glory glorifying to you. Enable me to proclaim your truth <clears throat> in the way that you would have it proclaimed. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> John has been giving the three evidences of authentic Christianity, obedience, love, and truth. And uh, one of the burdens of John, really throughout this letter, is the burden of assurance, uh, Christian assurance, assur assurance of salvation. It's a very key element of uh what he's telling us. So, for example, and we've seen it even in our own text, the word no. The word no is repeated 36 times in these brief five chapters. And um, just to back up to chapter 2, verses 3 through 5, <clears throat> as a reminder of this, it says, And by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected, and by this we know that we are in him. So our confident knowledge of our relationship with God is one of the things that John is deeply concerned about in this book. Even though he's giving us all these tests, and in a sense you could say in giving them, he's making us question whether we're truly a believer. His objective is not to create doubts in us. His objective is to create assurance in us <clears throat> and confidence. And confidence is the other word used many times. And if we look at 1 John 2.28, <clears throat> he says... Uh, and now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence <clears throat> and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. Uh, and First uh, John four seventeen. <clears throat> By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence 
for the day of judgment, because as he is, so also are we in this world. So he wants us to know uh, and be have a clear knowledge of our salvation. He wants us to be confident about that. Now, presumption can be a great danger to the soul. And we see that sometimes in Scripture where people presume of their relationship. For example, when Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount says, Many will say unto me, Lord, Lord, did we not cast out demons in your name and proclaim the word in your name? And he will say, Depart from me, I never knew you. So presumption can be a great danger to the the soul, but doubt, fear, a lack of assurance is also a great hindrance in pursuing godliness. When we are um, covered with fear and hesitation and doubt, it hinders us from confidently pursuing holiness, which is what God wants us to to do in our life. And so it is assurance and confidence that makes us <clears throat> uh, bold in, uh, and hopeful in our pursuing a righteous life. <clears throat> now, the, the concept, the thought of assurance is very significant, uh, not only in the Bible, but in our confessional standards. And if you turn in your hymnal uh, to the back, the Westminster Confession, I won't read all of the confession's statement, but on page 929 in uh, the Psalter hymnal is Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 18, on assurance of grace and salvation. And so I want to just read two paragraphs to help us keep this thought of assurance kind of going through our minds. So the first paragraph, although hypocrites and other unregenerate men may vainly deceive themselves with false hopes and carnal presumptions of being in the favor of God and a state of salvation, which hope of theirs shall perish, yet such as truly believe in the Lord Jesus and love him in sincerity, endeavoring to walk in all good conscience before him, may in this life be certainly assured that they are in the state of grace and may rejoice in the hope of the glory of God, which hope shall never make them ashamed. That's what God's design and desire is for us. And then I'm going to skip... Two and three, though there's many good things in there too. And just go down to paragraph four, which is on the next page, 930. It says, true believers may have the assurance of their salvation, divers ways shaken, diminished, and intermitted. As by negligence and preserving of it, by falling into some special sin which woundeth the conscience and grieveth the spirit, by some sudden or vehement temptation, by God's withdrawing the light of his countenance and suffering even such as fear him to walk in darkness and to have no light, yet are they never utterly destitute of that seed of God and life of faith 
that love of Christ and the brethren, that sincerity of heart and conscience of duty, conscience of duty, out of which by the operation of the Spirit, this assurance may in due time be revived and by the which in the meantime they are supported from utter despair. <clears throat> so we might have our assurance of salvation shaken for those different reasons it cites, but we can have it revived and renewed. And that, of course, is the goal. And so what we're doing tonight, what I'm going to do tonight is talk about the uh, what shakes our assurance and out of this passage and what confidence we have uh, in our assurance also from this passage. <clears throat> before I get to that, before I get to what John says, I have a little more in my introduction. It's a long introduction. You know, an introduction is like a porch. Uh, you may not have ever thought of that, but an introduction is like a porch. And some porches are really small. My porch growing up in Pennsylvania, it was very small. So you step on the porch and you step on in the house. It's quick. <clears throat> some porches are really big. And you get up on the porch and you sit, stand around a while and you talk a little while, maybe you sit in a chair, and then you go in. So that's, that's the kind of introduction tonight. This is a big porch. <clears throat> what is it that disturbs our peace and that interrupts our confidence before God? This passage is going to give us a little bit, but what, just think more broadly than this passage. What is it that does that? We struggle with our objective understanding of what a Christian is and our subjective feelings about that. And some of the things that can give us unrest disturb our subjective appreciation of the objective truth uh, are very some very simple things like it might be a matter of disposition, personality. Some people are more melancholy than others, and they're going to struggle with it a little more than other people. <clears throat> it may be a matter of health, and I'm not here thinking of mental health, so that can play into it. But when you're sick, when you're physically sick, it affects your thinking and your demeanor about things. When you're <clears throat> sick, everything's bad. You know, you feel bad, and so everything is bad. And so you struggle with that. It might be a specific sin. It might be circumstances that have come into your life. But there are two particular sources of shaking our assurance. One is uh, Satan. In Revelation 12, <coughs> 10, he's referred to as the accuser of the brethren who accuses the brothers before our God day and night. And he accuses us. Thomas Brooks, a Puritan, wrote a book called Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices. Uh, one of the sections of the book is Satan's Devices to Keep Saints in a Sad, Doubting, Questioning, and Uncomfortable con Condition. So these are some of the techniques. He gives eight. <clears throat> some are kind of repetitive, so I'm only going to give you four. But there are eight in that list, and the four I want to read to you are these. Uh, one, by causing saints to remember their sins more than their Savior. Yes, even to forget and neglect their Savior. 
Satan wants you to think about your sins and he wants you to forget about Christ. Another one, by causing saints to make false inferences from the cross-actings of providence. So bad circumstances come into your life and Satan wants you to think. That means God's mad at you and thinks evil of you. Another one is by suggesting to saints that the conflict that is in them is found also in hypocrites and profane souls. In other words, non-Christians and unbelievers, they act that way. Well, you must be one of them. So he wants you to doubt yourself because of similarities between you and sometimes non-Christians. And then the fourth I want to read to you is by reminding the saint of his frequent relapses into sin, formally repented of and prayed against. Uh, He wants to, every time you commit a, a similar sin that you had already committed, He's going to be there to remind you, see, see, you're not a Christian because you're doing it again. You repented about it, but you're doing it again. And you repent and you fall into that and you're doing it again. He wants you to constantly be in doubt and in fear. And the other thing that brings us a great deal of of um, doubt in our insurance is our own consciences. And so we're going to talk about that. That's a part of this passage here tonight and a part of the uh, passage in Scripture. And the challenge that John wants to drive us to, that the Bible wants to drive us to, is objective truth to answer these things. And so I'd like you to turn to Romans 8. Probably the two chapters will be, or the two places we're going to look at most is um, here, 1 John and Romans 8. So you can kind of keep a finger in both places. And, And two things of objective truth that would coincide with what John's telling us Uh, that are to be answers to the strategies of Satan and those other things that might cause us doubt and fear. Two things. One is the redemption accomplished by Christ. So Romans 8, verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you are in Christ Jesus... There is no condemnation uh, that will come against you. That's a definitive statement of your position in Christ. You'll struggle with sin, but there is no condemnation that will be lodged against you. And then the other one is to remember Christ's defense and intercession uh, verse 34, Romans 8:34. Who is who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, <clears throat> who is at the right hand of God, 
who indeed is interceding for us. So Satan is going to bring accusation against us, but Paul says, well, who is there it? Who is there to condemn? Well, nobody. Because Christ died for us and he intercedes <coughs> with God for us. And the objective truth that there is no condemnation and the objective truth of Christ's intercession is what we need to focus on and build on to answer the uh, strategies of Satan, uh, the doubts and fears that arise in our own mind. So we come back to 1 John 3 and... We, we see the, 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 that which causes us trouble in our hearts. So in verse 20, 3 verse 20, he says, For whenever our heart condemns us, so there's the issue, our heart is condemning us. This is the issue of our conscience, the, the, uh, the, our, our inner being, our soul, our mind, our, Thoughts, <clears throat> our conscience condemns us. Um, we're going to, I want you to go back to Romans. Turn to go back to Romans 2. And this, this time Romans 2, verse 15. And he says here, he's speaking of the Gentiles at this point, but he says, they show that the, the work of the law is written on their hearts while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. <clears throat> we see the work of the conscience is twofold. So here we're focusing on the one aspect of the work of the conscience, and that is that it accuses us. Uh, it also can defend us. The NIV of that verse is um, that uh, their conscience is also bearing witness and their thoughts now accusing, now even defending them. There's a proper role of the conscience in accusing us. There's a proper role of the Word of God in accusing us. When we sin, there's a proper role in the the word of God, and in our consciences convicting us of sin. Now, that's a proper work. We don't want to reject that work when we sin. Uh, when, when you sin and uh, both the, your conscience and the Holy Spirit and the word of God are condemning you or accusing you, you need to listen to that. You need to pay attention to that. That's a proper role of the conscience. We need our conscience. We need our God-enlightened uh, conscience <clears throat> to do that work. A non-Christian can feel guilty if they've done something wrong, but they have no interest in the remedy. Uh, a Christian, on the other hand, he becomes aware of his offense against God, and he, he's aware that it's offense not in general, but it's offense against Almighty God. And he's interested in the remedy of that, that is repentance and faith. And we know that 
David, when he tried to hide his guilt, as we go back and read uh, Psalm 32, <clears throat> when he tried to hide his guilt with his sin with Bathsheba, when he kept silent, his bones wasted away with his groaning all day long. That was a proper role of the spirit, the proper role of his conscience in accusing him. We need that. Uh, when it when it speaks to us, we need to pay attention to that. Uh, turn to First uh, Corinthians chapter. Excuse me, Second Corinthians chapter seven. If you remember Paul's letters to the Corinthians, one of the things he was doing in First Corinthians, particularly, <clears throat> he was confronting the Corinthian church with tolerating a sin in their midst. And he brought them to grief because of that, his confronting them. In 2 Corinthians 7, verse 10, or let me back up to verse 8. For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it, um, for I see that the letter grieved you, though only for a little while. As it is, as it is, I rejoice not because you were grieved, uh, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, what <clears throat> also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point you have proved yourselves innocent in this matter. So when Paul wrote to the Corinthians and he made them sorry, he wasn't sorry for making them sorry. It was a godly thing. It brought them to repentance. And that's what the conscience does. That's what God's spirit does. That's what the, um, the, the work of, uh, the, the word of God does is it confronts us with our sin, but it doesn't push us away from God. It pushes us to him so that we repent and we renew our faith and we renew our obedience. <clears throat> That's the proper work of conscience, conscience accusing us. But there's an improper accusation of conscience, and that's where, according to Satan's design, it causes us to feel that we're unforgivable, where it causes us to feel that we are worse than any other sinners that there ever were. When it drives us away from God, when it causes us to think, well, God won't want anything to do with me. When the conscience accuses us in a way that we feel there is no forgiveness possible for me. And when conscience does that, that's an improper use of conscience. That's an improper work of conscience. And take, for example, the... Um, prodigal son. He had rejected his father and run into a far country. 
And the scriptures tell us, Jesus' parable tells us, while he's in that far country, eating with the pigs, the Bible tells us he came to his senses. And he said, how many of my father's hired men have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father. You see, the improper working of conscience would be to say, well, God's not your father. He's not interested in you. You don't need, you can't go back to him. He's not going to welcome you. And the improper work of conscience is drives us away from him. The proper work of conscience tells us, I need to go back to my father. That phrase is so significant. When he came to his senses, he remembered it. That was my father. And he gets up and goes back to his father. He had a recognition of his relationship with God. The objective relationship with God was the answer to his subjective being overcome with guilt, maybe being frozen by guilt, unable to return to the Father, and he does return to him. <clears throat> so that's the, uh, that's the challenge to our assurance, is the work of the con- our conscience. What's the solution? Well, John gives that to us here in several ways. There are four solutions. And again, the subjective doubt has to be answered by objective truth. That's the only way we can deal with the lack of assurance. In verse 19, chapter 3, verse 19, he says, By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our hearts before him. So there's, uh, what is it that, what is the this referring to? What is it that will help us to know that we are of the truth and reassure our hearts before him? Well, the this that he's referring to is what came just before that, specifically verse 18, little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Our love of the brethren reassures us that we belong to God. Do you love other believers? Not perfectly, not without some struggle at times, but do you love your fellow Christians? This is how you can reassure your heart and allow you to know that you are of the truth if you love your brethren. Uh, it's, uh, again, the issue isn't whether we're perfect at it. The issue is whether there's any love for the brethren at all in us. And then out of that love, do we act in love toward them? You can't do everything, but have you acted in kindness toward your brother or sister in Christ? Have you reached out to them in some way, prayed for them? perhaps sent them a card, texted them, or called them. This gives us, is one of the solutions, one of the helps to confirm the assurance of our salvation. This is how we know we're of the truth and can 
reassure our hearts before him. The second solution or help we have to the doubts of our Christian assurance is to remember the greatness of God. In verse 20, For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, and he knows everything. In the final analysis, when you're dealing with the the struggle with the assurance of your salvation, you need to listen to God more than you listen to your own heart. God knows everything. God knows you better than you know yourself. And if he is standing for you, then you need to rest in that. Uh, the greatness of God. He's greater than our hearts. Um, and it takes us back to remember what we read in Romans 8. Who will bring any charge against the elect? It's God who justifies. Who is he that condemns? Christ Jesus who died more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God interceding for us. We are weak. But God is mighty, and he's greater than our hearts. And his objective truth and his objective affirmations about us is the defining point, not our doubts and not our fears. The third solution or help is that we obey his commands. He continues on. In verse 22, let's see, wait a minute. In verse 21, beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God and whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. Obedience to God's commands is an answer to the doubts and fears we have. Do you obey God's commands? Again, it's not do you perfectly obey God's commands, But do you have an interest in obeying God's commands? Do you have a a desire to obey God's commands? Do you have a desire to honor him, to do what he commands, to do what pleases him? Uh, It's And John amplifies what he means by that uh, in the verse that follows. And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he has commanded us. There are two commands he specifically cites that we need to obey there. One is that we believe in the name of the, of the Son of God, Jesus Christ. And the second one is that we love the brethren. It's interesting, the Greek tenses there are helpful for us in the thinking about this, that you... Believe is uh, an heiress, it's a point of action, it's uh, completed more than likely in the past and when we believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, that's part of the command. And then the, the loving is a present tense, which means it's a continuing, ongoing action. So we be only be, become Christians, we're only justified once. But living out the Christian life is something we continue to do over and over and over again through our life. And what he's saying 
is that the commands that you need to obey to to assure your heart is that you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and that you love the brothers. Those commands. Paul says it in a little different way in Galatians. He says the only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. And if those things are characteristic of your life, you see, then you can be assured and your heart can be confident. And the fourth help it comes out in verse 24. Uh, whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. And by this we know that he abides in us by the Spirit whom he has given us. <clears throat> the work of the Holy Spirit is a very important work in um, assuring us and confirming <clears throat> in us the confidence of our salvation. And it's not hearing a voice in your head when it talks about the Spirit at work in us. The Spirit always works in conjunction with the Word of God. It's when the Word of God becomes real and vital and powerful in our lives. That's uh, part of the work of the Spirit. Just to read you a quick paragraph by John Stott, the Spirit whose presence is the test of Christ abiding in us manifests himself objectively in our life and conduct. It is he who inspires us to confess Jesus as the Christ come in the flesh, as John immediately proceeds to show. It is also he who empowers us to live righteously and to love the brethren. So if we would assure our hearts when they accuse us and condemn us, we must look for the evidence of the Spirit's working, and particularly whether he is enabling us to believe in Christ, to obey God's commandments, and to love the brethren. For the condition of abiding is this comprehensive obedience, and the evidence of abiding is the gift of the Spirit. And let me uh, quickly go toward the end. What are the benefits? What are the results of uh, these works, the, these things that we have thought about? There's three benefits to us. One is in verse 19. By this we shall know that we are of him and can reassure our hearts before him. Other translations have we can put our hearts at rest in his presence. We can make our hearts rest in the Lord by these blessings, these benefits, these solutions, these helps, these reassurances of our relationship with God. Uh, verse 21 uh, brought up the idea of confidence again. And beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. It's We have our hearts at rest. We are confident before God. And the third benefit we have in this is we have confidence in prayer, specifically. Verse 22, And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. We have confidence as we pray to the Lord uh, and have assurance that he hears us. Uh, John repeats this thought in 1 John 5, verse 14 where he says, and this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. Now the cynic and the unbeliever will say, well, there's the fine print. God doesn't give us whatever we ask. But they don't understand 
that the heart of the believer always gets what they pray for. Because the heart of the believer, the focus of the heart of the believer, if our heart is right with God, is that our goal is always to do what pleases him. Our prayer is always, God, glorify your name. Our prayer is always, uh, let your will be done. The Lord's Prayer gives us, right at the beginning, the three greatest prayers that a Christian can pray. Hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. Those are the three greatest prayers you can make. And that doesn't mean you don't cry out to God in your distress. It doesn't mean you, like the Son of God, don't cry out, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. It in no way takes away the urgency and the agony of our prayers and for the needs we have for ourselves, for our loved ones, but ultimately it's your name be glorified, your kingdom come, your will be done. The dilemma of your assurance is your conscience accusing you. The solutions to that is your love, the evidence of your love for the brethren, the greatness of God being greater than your heart, obedience to his commands, believing in Jesus, loving one another, and the witness of the Spirit, the evidence of his work in you. And the benefit of that assurance is your heart is at rest, you're confident before God, and you're confident in prayer. So may God strengthen you in your assurance of faith that you will have those blessings and benefits in your life. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you so much for the blessings and benefits of your grace in dealing with our assurance of salvation to give us full and rich assurance of your love for us and our relationship with you. And I pray that the thoughts from this passage and from your word might be a help and blessing to your people tonight. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.